Today is Earth Day. All this week, we've been doing a series of podcasts on various aspects of environmentalism. We heard from Ben Bayer and Nikos Sotirokopoulos about the history, the dark history of the environmentalist movement. Yesterday, we heard an interview with the CEO of an energy company about the shale revolution in the US and the attacks on that revolution driven by environmentalist ideas. Today, we're gonna to talk about some of the philosophical ideas driving the environmentalist movement and driving the current fears around fossil fuels and climate change. So welcome to New Ideal Live, the podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute. I'm Keith Lockich. And with me to help us do a deep dive into these philosophical issues is ARI's philosopher-in-chief, Ankar Gatte. Hi, Ankar. Hi, Keith. All right, so we're going to look at environmentalism from the perspective of Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism. But I think a good place to start is with the fact that Ayn Rand herself did that more than 50 years ago. So in, in 1970, she gave a talk, which was later published as an essay called The Anti-Industrial Revolution. And in that talk, she looked at, you know, the, the, what was then sort of the burgeoning environmentalist movement. It was at the time it was called the ecology movement. And she kind of did an analysis of it from the framework of her philosophy. Now, I first read that essay years ago. And one of the things that really struck me about the things she talks about in that, in that talk and, and in her argument is that she brings in facts and information that I'd never heard before and that it never occurred to me to think about it and that you never hear discussed when it comes to environmental issues. So she prompted her audience to think about, you know, what was human life like in the centuries and millennia before the Industrial Revolution? And what is life like today, you know, in undeveloped countries around the world where people live in poverty and they don't have access to energy and that kind of thing? She, she gives this laundry list, you know, concretizing. She talks about, you know, the squalor, the misery, the helplessness, the fear, the unspeakably hard labor, you know, the starvation and so on. And, and the other thing she does is she points out the absolutely staggering growth in human life expectancy and, and things like that that occurred because of the Industrial Revolution. And what I found so striking about this at the time was these are, if you're, if you're talking about the effects of industrial capitalism and the effects of technology, these are incredibly relevant facts uh, to have as part of the context, but you never heard about them from people talking about these environmental concerns. So there's this huge part of the context that was just completely dropped um, in these discussions. So I, I wanna kick us off with a kind of two part question. One, you know, what can we learn from that about how Ayn Rand approaches important intellectual issues? And two, you know, when we look at the discussion of environmental issues today, you know, the main one of course being climate change, are there similarly things that we're not hearing that we should be hearing about that are like crucial parts of the context that are just being dropped? So go ahead. <laughs> the, what's so startling in Ayn Rand's approach is that it's, it's the value perspective that she has. She's a champion of the individual of human life, of the human potential, of what is possible to man on earth. Her 
the translation of that at a kind of cultural political level is she was, I think, I think of her as the greatest champion of the industrial revolution and of capitalism, of the whole social, political, economic system that has made possible modern life. And that it's the context to think about any kind of environmental issue is to think of it in terms of there's a human environment. So environment means like the environs for some species. And when we're thinking about man, it's for us. We want an environment in which we can thrive, in which we can build individual lives or putting it in terms of the American whole approach, the pursuit of happiness and that that's an achievement. And so what she highlights in any discussion of environmentalism or it was called the ecology movement when she was writing, is this fact that the, the crucial fact is to understand the way in which modern man has built the human environment. And to put it simply, and th this is part of what she brings up, and I too like, found it startling the first time I read this, that it, yeah, this is, it's clearly the right perspective to have, and it's clearly the perspective that nobody else has. And this was that if you just think of it, in terms of the amount of people living on the earth, how long they lived and their standard of living, all have gone dramatically up. And she's writing, as you said, in the seventies and they've gone even further up since then. That's the fact that you have to think about in terms of any kind of environmental issue that the human environment has never been better. Um, and it, like, it's a massive achievement when you think prior to the industrial revolution and to capitalism, what life was like, and now what life is like for us, it, it's just, it's a difference in kind, not a difference in degree. And that's what she really highlights. And it's so important to keep that always at the forefront of the discussion. Yeah, what's interesting is, is in the talk, the way she says it is, it's, it's not necessary to remind you of what life was like. You know, but I, but I, I, I think she's being too generous, especially today with, uh, you know, just the education that people have about history. I think people literally have no clue what life was actually like on a concrete level. It's so easy to take for granted everything we have around us in modern civilization, and not, not just, not just, um, like not pay attention to but literally know nothing about it and i think that's why it's so crucial to draw attention to those facts and the fact that that isn't done is is a major part of why people are so confused about these issues now when she was writing um you know the the issues that that environmentalists were talking about at the time were things like resource depletion and population growth and pesticides and things like that and those issues are still around but I mean, I think today, you know, the major issue that everybody's focused on is climate and energy. And so the question is, you know, we can ask the same question about um, issues related to climate and energy. Are there, you know, are there sort of crucial relevant pieces of context that we're not getting on these issues that we just ne literally never even hear about, even though, you know, they're, they're absolutely relevant to our or should be relevant to our thinking on these issues. Um, so to set to tee that up, I think let's let's just sort of um, take a look at the the what we hear. You know, the dominant, overwhelmingly dominant view that we hear 
about climate and energy. And I don't, you know, I think it's pretty clear that this isn't even, you know, one view among many. This is like the dominant view that basically everybody in the world thinks. And you can kind of, I mean, I want to break it down into kind of three points. Basically, it's the idea that one, that man-made climate change is going to be a world-ending catastrophe. Two, that preventing that catastrophe requires that we essentially stop using fossil fuels. Three, that it's feasible to stop using fossil fuels because we have all kinds of practical alternatives. You know, so the basic conclusion that um, people come to about our use of fossil fuels is that fossil fuels are unnecessary and apocalyptically destructive. And so it's treated as just sort of a no brainer that we need to be getting rid of them. Um, now, so, you know, the question is, are there, are there important things that we're not, important information, important parts of the context that we're not getting and coming to that conclusion? Um, and I, you know, I know what your answer or my answer is gonna be. I did wanna say that some of the themes that we're going to be talking about in response to this perspective is are, some of these themes are expressed in a book that's gonna be coming out in May um, called Fossil Future by Alex Epstein. So we had Alex on the, po on the podcast last week. And we were talking about attacks on him, you know, in a, in a, basically an attempt to kind of suppress this book, which is coming out in May, um, which was an interesting discussion in itself. But um, Alex, one of the things he said on the podcast is he credits you, Ankar, with helping him shape some of the arguments in this book. And so I thought, you know, it would be interesting to... Um, uh, you know, talk about some of the arguments that come up in the book, but just talk about these issues in general as a way of examining. So our, our mission today is like to examine the philosophical premises behind environmentalism, but I thought this would be a good way to frame that discussion. Um, so, um, so part of, so we have this view that fossil fuels are unnecessary and apocalyptically destructive which kind of raises the question of if they're so horrible, like why are we, why do we use them in the first place? I mean, we, I mean, we use 80% of the world's energy still to this day comes from fossil fuels in one form or another, oil, coal, natural gas. So, you know, what are the, what, what's the context that we're missing? What are the benefits um, that we get from fossil fuels that explain why, you know, we, we, we're still using them in such massive quantities? If there's something to celebrate on Earth Day, it's not the environmental movement. It's the fossil fuel industry and more broadly, industrial civilization. But industrial civilization is a civilization that runs on energy, that powers machines, that make possible uh, work and labor on a scale that nobody could have imagined prior to the industrial revolution. I mean, just take agriculture. Most people, and most people, it means like 95% of the people so worked on agriculture pre-industrial revolution. And they could, could not, I mean, they could barely feed themselves. People died of starvations, kids died of starvations. Any um, kind of gl glitch in the weather, uh, um, you have a drought, you have a flood, it's too hot, it's too cold, endangered people to the point of starvation and death. And 
we don't think of that, in, particularly in the modern industrialized world, the countries that have benefited and have participated in the industrial revolution. We don't think of that as the, the, we're threatened in that kind of way because we have industry machines. The, I mean, what percentage of the population now works in agriculture? It's so much smaller and yet they can feed the whole world. And we don't have issues of, um, if you, there's a drought in California, you're worried that people are gonna starve in California. There's nothing like that now. And that's the achievement of industrial civilization. And industrial civilization runs on energy. It needs power and it needs power on a global scale to, I mean, just think of all the machines. If, if you um, picked an apple out of your fridge today, just think of all the machines that are involved from producing the fertilizer to, to shipping the apples, to refrigerating the apples. So on and on, it's, there's so much power that goes into just, if you go into the grocery store and then you have all these goods that you can buy. It's, so it's enormously energy dense. And there's been one industry, one industry, the fossil fuel industry that has been able to produce energy at a global scale that is, eco so produce means it's economical, that we can afford to buy it. It's not everybody can afford to put gas in their car um, and all these other machines that you have in your house from air conditioning to heating, you can afford to run these machines. And that's the achievement of the fossil fuel industry. And if you wanna celebrate something, you should celebrate all the people involved in this industry. Yeah, and I think it's worth underscoring that they, I mean, there there are other ways of you know generating electricity and producing energy, but there's fossil fuels are uniquely cost-effective, reliable, and abundant in ways that other forms of energy aren't. I mean, one of the things that Alex spells out in his book is just uh, all the different ways in which we need energy. So you know the we talk a lot about using solar and wind to get electricity, but electricity makes up actually a, not the majority of the amount of energy that we need. A lot of what we need are liquid fuels for transportation, you know, and, and the, the, the energy density of, of, you know, petroleum to drive cars and truck, you know, container ships and all these kinds of things. Uh, you know, there really aren't alternatives to that. Um, and the fact that they exist in such abundant quantities and that, you know, they, that they're available in a reliable way. Uh, one of the problems with these other forms of energy that people um, uh, want to push us into, solar and wind, is they're, they're, they're unstable, unreliable forms of energy. Um, and what people, when we need energy, we need it on demand. I mean, we need it there when it's available to us. And if, if um, you know, so, so it's, it's, it's there, the, it's 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 not just that energy is crucial to human flourishing. It's that I mean, you talked about the economics of it. It's it's that cost-effective, reliable, abundant energy is essential to human flourishing. And fossil fuels are are almost uniquely in the position of being able to deliver that. So, I mean, one of the things that is provocative, uh, but I think right about Alex's argument is is that 
you know, not, it's not, not only is it not the case that we should be abandoning fossil fuels, you know, there are billions of people around the world today who are suffering and dying for lack of cost-effective energy. We need to be massively expanding our use of fossil fuels um, in order to, you know, continue to spread the benefits of industrial civilization that we've just been talking about. Um, and, so, and so, you know, yeah, go ahead. I was gonna say part of the evidence for that is, um, so if we go from when Ayn Rand was writing in 1970 to the present day, there's been a massive increase in production and as a result in the standard of living in two of the most, or the two most populous countries in the world, India and China. And that has been powered essentially by fossil fuels. And it would, would not have been possible if if somehow people had been able to convince them, yeah, don't do do away with fossil fuels, just use so-called um, green or alternative energy. You would literally have billions of people at a, at a much, much lower standard of living if they had done that. So the, the, that the, how crucial to, this is to the advancement of human life. Those two countries just in the last 50 years really showcase the value of fossil fuels to the advancement of human life. And I mean, you had figures 50 years ago, Paul Ehrlich, you know, the author of The Population Bomb, making his predictions about how, about, you know, the inability of food production to keep up with population growth. I think I remember at one point he was basically making the argument that we should just give up hope for India. Just assume that everyone in India is going to starve because uh, it's already too late and we should just, you know, let them all die, basically. <laughs> Uh, and, and if we'd followed the predictions that environmentalists made 50 years ago, uh, yeah, we, you know, I mean, I mean that, that's the, the disasters that they predicted would come because we followed their advice, not because we rejected it. Um, so, the, so the benefits that we get from fossil, so we hear all the time about the alleged um, negatives of fossil fuels. We never hear about the things that you just described that we just talked about, the, the absolutely indispensable life-giving benefits of these fuels. Um, and so a, a, a point that Alex stresses and is stressed in the book is really, it's, it's a sub point under the crucial, and it's really the irreplaceable value that we get from fossil fuels is that includes the, um, the, the ability to secure human life from things like droughts, floods, fires, um, and so on. So the idea that it's, oh yeah, okay, on net fossil fuels and, and the modern energy industry has enabled us to prosper, it's how we can have the whole internet and computer revolution. I mean, if you have any idea of the power that requires, um, th this is made possible by modern energy and energy production, so, and essentially the fossil fuel industry, but climate and, and dangers from climate are getting worse. So more, more people are drowning in floods, dying from droughts and so on. That's a complete fantasy and fantasy is the right word. It's not close to the truth. We are getting better and better as a result of having modern energy 
and modern industrialization at dealing with all these things from flooding to droughts to fires. I mean, just, just to, I brought up California and droughts. Um, I'm fortunate enough, though I didn't think of it like this at the time, I spent a year as a kid in Ethiopia. And this is, they were already suffering from drought, but before it made the headlines and Band-Aid and that kind of, and yeah. you literally, when you drove outside the city, would see people starving to death from the drought. And that, that you don't, drought in California means don't water your lawn every day. Um, and that's the difference between having modern energy and the whole infrastructure that the industry has built and not having it. And that is, so, so the idea that, oh yeah, on net it's good, but in regard to climate, things are getting worse. That is, it's a, it's a big lie, really. And that's part of what he stresses in the book. And then, and then you have to think, like, why are we being fed a big lie? Yeah. And one of the ways he concretizes this point is, I mean, people keep records of, you know, keep statistics about climate-related deaths uh, going back 100 years. And, you know, Alex... Is, is looking at the issue in his view as well. You know, if, if it's true that climate is getting worse and it's causing all these problems, you'd expect that we would see these, you know, an increase in climate-related deaths. And, but what you see is not just the opposite, but it's absolutely staggering. So if you look at the, if a graph, this is a graph from Alex's book. Um, it, it's an absolutely stunning decline. Just over the last hundred years, climate-related deaths have dropped by something like 98%. So during this period when we've been, uh, when in our industrial activity has been putting carbon dioxide into the atmosphere and, and we've experienced a certain degree of warming as a result of that, we're 50 times safer from climate disasters than we were 100 years ago. Um, and you, know, you brought up the issue of drought. One, one issue that I think about is, is uh, you know, extreme cold. I mean, it's more, it, 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 it's, it's a fact that more people die today from extreme cold than from extreme heat. But if you think about how people would have to cope with extreme cold, you know, before the industrial revolution, I once looked up some data about, you know, the American frontier people on, the, you know, pioneers on the frontiers of America. Um, they literally had to chop thousands of pounds of firewood every year just so they wouldn't freeze to death through the winter. You know, and if you compare that to how easy it is today to stay warm in a modern home with central heating, you know, like we look at snow falling and it looks magical and beautiful. And, uh, you know, we write songs like Winter Wonderland. <laughs> you know, it's not like winter freezing death trap or something like that. It's, it's so, yeah, I mean, this is a it's it's right to highlight that this is something that's stressed in the book is the fact that that fossil fuels have made the world massively more livable including keeping us protected from the risk of being harmed by climate disasters and the more we push to the more there's a push to eliminate fossil fuels the more we actually are at risk we the more we put ourselves at risk from being harmed by climate disasters that we can't cope with because we don't have the structures, the machines, the technology that are powered by fossil fuels. Yeah, so, so the first point in terms of thinking about this, of the, of the philosophical ideas at work, is that 
if you have a human perspective, if you understand that what we're thinking about and what we should be concerned about is are we living in a human environment, which means an environment that is hospitable to human life in which the individual, if he chooses to, can thrive, prosper, pursue his, ha pursue his happiness, the human environment has never been better. The opportunities in the modern, westernized, industrialized world means that billions of people can pursue lives that even 300 years ago, they couldn't dream of that this is air travel, I mean, communicating as we're doing now over um, Zoom, but uh, just teleconference across the world. And like you, we complain now, it's all oh, the connections choppy in it. And people 300 years ago, I mean, they couldn't dream that this would be a daily life would be like this. And so it's never been better. And then you nevertheless have voices saying, we're one minute away from catastrophe and collapse. And you have to really think, like, what could possibly lead you to that conclusion if what your focus is on is the human environment to think that and it's i mean what we i think we should now talk about is that it's it's a long standing view that we're one minute from catastrophe i mean you're bringing up some of what was in the 70s of resource depletion population but it was the population growth was we're going to see um, all these people starving, and including in, in the industrialized world, there were views like Great Britain, the population is going to shrink, shrink uh, I forget by how much, but I mean like 80, 90% because there's not going to be food and so on. That, so that this catastrophizing has a long standing history that's important to know that it's not, it, they used to think, oh yeah, everything's great. But now we've got something about climate. It was always from the really, I think the inception of this as a dominant movement, it's we're one minute away from catastrophe. And why is that to think that one could think that? Yeah, and, and I mean, um, well, so let's talk about that question. So what, what are the, uh, so the question is, um there there's huge parts of the context that people who think about this issue completely ignore and drop so they ignore the benefits of industrial civilization they ignore the improvements in human life they ignore the fact that human life has never been better and they think that the results of industrial activity and industrial technology is apocalypse and they've been making these predictions, you know, pe people have been making these predictions since, I mean, in the podcast that Ben and Nikos did, you know, they sort of attributed the start of the environmentalist movement to Rachel Carson in, in the early 60s and in her book, Silent Spring. And I mean, she was predicting, in addition to concerns about birds and wildlife, she, in that, that book actually focuses a lot on predictions of this huge cancer epidemic that's going to happen as a result of uh, our use of pesticides. And that, you know, the, to the degree that she was talking about, that didn't come to pass. These claims, these crazy claims that Paul Ehrlich and his cohorts were making about population, uh, I mean, needless to say, none of that came to pass. Even with regard to climate, 
predictions that people were making about the effects of climate change in the 80s, 90s, early 2000s. You know, Al Gore was predicting the world would be over in 10 years, and I think it was 2012 when he did that. So here we are. You know, the world hasn't ended today. Um, so, so what is what is behind this total, this huge disconnect from reality that that we're seeing there? Is it that they like? Is there something in their in the way in the standard that they're using in the framework that they're using to think about this that's wrong? Yeah, I think in both, and it's to really understand what's happening. I think you have to situate it in the broader framework of thinking of it as in terms of the industrial revolution and what produced that. That that flows out of the Enlightenment and the Enlightenment's emphasis on science, reason, technology, the ability that if we um, pursue knowledge and use the knowledge that we're discovering, we can re recreate the world and create it in the image of human values. You get the idea that progress is possible. And if we continue to act rationally, pursue knowledge and ensure that people are free, progress is limitless, that we can keep progressing. That's a view that comes out of the enlightenment into the 19th century. It's what fuels the industrial revolution. And this view has always had enemies. So the enlightenment has had people who are against the enlightenment. The industrial revolution from its inception had all kinds of critiques, uh, sorry, critics who were saying that there's something really bad with what is going on. Um, and capitalism has had people attacking it from its, um, if you think of it as its kind of real achievement is with the American system of rights and the government exists to protect each individual's rights. And if the government does that and does that successfully, what you get is a free society and what you get is a capitalist society which in which people deal with each other voluntarily and trade. That has always been attacked and particularly by intellectuals. So you have the phenomenon in the 19th century of millions of people going to or wanting to go to the US because it's this new country that is founded on freedom, respect for the individual, respect for his rights. Um, he, he will be treated uh, equally under the law. Leave aside, I mean, that's a big issue, but leave aside the issue of slavery. So that was the American ideal. It's why people were coming. And you simultaneously have intellectuals saying, no, but capitalism is a system of exploitation. And what we need is socialism and we need to get rid of private property and we need to get rid of prices. So, and that is, that's going on in the 19th century. And that's the philosophic backdrop to I think what happens in the 20th. So the first thing is that it's anti-capitalist, it's anti-industry. So in the 19th century, you get all kinds of views about life used to be better um, without industry and so on. And you, there might be some aristocrat for whom he could say, yeah, life was better when I had the feudal system and people were indebted to me and so on. But 
you can't look at the 19th century and think, well, yeah, life was better pre-industry. Um, the reason people flocked into the industries, moved from agriculture, farming into factories and so on, is it was an improvement in their standard of living. And so that tells you how low their standard of living was pre-industry. And but the, the intellectuals attack that. And the first attack is to say socialism is superior to capitalism. And when that failed, then it was the question, OK, what how, what are they going to do when that is no longer plausible? So so let's get beneath that, because what is it what is it that explains uh, why there was this this why the intellectuals you know, took that approach? Um, I mean, is it something about the moral framework? You know, if you've got a country that's founded on the pursuit of happiness and, in, and, and the idea that each individual is responsible for his own life and, and should be achieving his own personal happiness, um, like coming out of, I mean, um, if, if the moral framework that's dominated Western civilization for 2000 years is the idea that selfishness is evil and that that's not how we should be living. We should be sacrificing that we, you know, and is there something about that religious perspective that gets carried forward into the 19th century that explains the intellectuals revolt against capitalism, against all these things that we're talking about? Yes, I think it's exactly that, that it's the pursuit of happiness is that if you wanna think what's radically new in the American revolution at the moral level, it's that idea. It's that it's the individual, what he should be doing in life is pursuing his own happiness. He doesn't live for the nation. He doesn't live for his race. He doesn't live for God. It's to pursue his own happiness here on earth as an individual and then uh, uh, people you want to deal with and so on. But it, it's that perspective. And part of the enlightenment is a struggle between, you can put it between reason and faith, between science and religion, between those who say the individual matters, his life matters, he should think for himself and live for himself, versus the religious mentality that says, who are you to think? And you're supposed to, you don't count, you're supposed to sacrifice and serve God. And the, the religious thinkers rightly saw themselves as losing in the enlightenment. And the counter enlightenment is a way of resurrecting the religious worldview in more secular terms. And one of the I mean, the, the leading philosophical figure, though many people would think that's not true, but this was Rand's view and I agree with it completely. The leading intellectual or philosopher who's leading the counter enlightenment is Kant. And if you just think in terms of the pursuit of happiness, his whole morality is about, no, the pursuit of happiness is wrong. It's not even in the, your, you take yourself outside the realm of morality. If you're interested or concerned with happiness, you're supposed to do your duty, duty for the sake of duty. And it's, a, it's an incredible level of selflessness or anti-selfishness. And that 
is part of what's fueling the whole outlook that turns against the industrial revolution and turns against capitalism. Because capitalism is the system that unleashes the individual and his pursuit of happiness. And um, I was gonna say about that. Yeah, so, so, um, so the, the, you, you talk about there's a secularization of this view, but the elements of the philosophical outlook that you know, is expressed in religion, I think you, you see those carried forward and we, we were talking earlier about this, about the idea of catastrophizing, like predicting or anticipating disaster as a result of these kinds of activities. I mean, it seems like that goes right back to the religious perspective that says that if a, that if a, if a person is selfish, is pursuing his own self-interest, you know, this is, he's tainted by original sin. And, you know, the, the result of people not embracing their duty to sacrifice for God and for others, you know, the result of that will be this apocalyptic judgment day. I mean, is that, is that literally what we're seeing here carried this kind of religious perspective carried over in, in the, in what seems like a secular form, but the idea that, you know, that these industrial activities that we're engaging in to improve man's quality of life and do all these incredible things, those are selfish profit-seeking activities. I mean, they've got to lead to disaster. Like, is that, it's, they've got to uh, uh, provoke the earth to respond with, you know, the apocalyptic judgment, with, you know, judgment day in the same way that a religious person would view that as, as, as what they would expect from God. Is that what we're seeing here? Yeah, I view it as it is a secularization of that viewpoint that the older religious view was, who are you to play God? Who are you to disturb um, God's plans? Who are you to insert and assert your own views, your own values, your own life? You're supposed to be completely subordinate and erasing yourself from existence, really, is in, in the end the religious view. You don't count. And the environmentalism substitutes Mother Earth for God and has the same kind of view that Mother Earth has laid out a plan and conditions for us that nature in its pristine wild state is given to us, that's in which we can live and flourish, which is, a, I mean, it, anybody who reads a little bit of human history knows that that is not true. But it doesn't matter to a religious view. It, it has the, the religion is exempt from reason, evidence, argument. So it, it has implanted this kind of view that it's if we disturb the initial conditions that have been laid out for us, so something bad is going to happen. And it and then it, there's just variations on something bad is going to happen. And this is part of the attack on capitalism. Capitalism was obviously a, um, a, you can put it in an orgy of self-assertion that people were remaking the world. And that was, it's, we were playing God and we were creating a human environment that had not existed before. Cities, skyscrapers, highways, railroads. And there was a kind of mentality of 
who are you to play God? And I think the modern environmental is just a continuation and with some alteration, but not in its fundamentals of that kind of outlook and opposition to capitalism and to industrialism in particular. Yeah, and, and part, of the, uh, part of the way that uh, manifests is the idea that nature apart from man, that wilderness apart from man has, has a kind of intrinsic value apart from any human ends or apart from human life. And that um, when we engage in productive activities, I mean, basically what human productiveness consists of is taking the raw elements of nature and using them, reshaping them to serve our purposes and to further our ends and improve our life. But, but if, if nature is, has a sort of intrinsic value in this way, then anything that we do that has an impact on nature is necessarily destructive of that intrinsic value. And, and, and then that feeds into this whole idea that, the, that any kind of impact is necessarily destructive and therefore is gonna lead, lead to catastrophe. So the whole standard that's being employed is not, you've been talking the whole time today about by, by the standard of human life, the, all these things, are enormously beneficial and you know incredible progress, but but I guess the point is that that's not the standard that's operative here. The standard is not having any impact on nature. Is that the right way to think and, about? And it? one of the the today the way that that is put as it, and it's taken as something noble to do that you want to minimize your footprint. That's one of the most evil slogans I've ever heard. That it, what your goal, so the goal in life is not to have any footprint. And that's like a human being is an intruder on the planet. And you have to sort of tiptoe around, trying not to disturb anything, not to put a footprint in the sand or in the mud. So it's, and the end point of that kind of view is, yeah, the planet would be better if we weren't on it. And that's the idea that it has some kind of intrinsic value you're, that you're not thinking of good and bad from the perspective of an individual human being. And does it advance or hinder his life? But you have some kind of standard that is divorced from human life. That's captured the, the, this kind of anti-impact, the, the, the popular colloquial phrase, you've written about this, is this idea of a footprint and that you want to minimize it. And the, the ideal then is to have zero footprint, which means that the only way you can do that in the end is to not exist. And that's an anti-human ideal that is lurking in the background, but often makes, its, um, uh, its, makes itself seen, but it's so monstrous that the people don't really believe it. So they don't really believe when they say, like you shouldn't have a footprint they don't really believe that what the people are saying is like, it would be better if you didn't exist. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned that I've written about this. I mean, one of the things that I point out in, this, in the article, it's called No Footprint, No Life, is the, is the ways that people get caught up in these impossible dilemmas. You know, you, are you, you know, they tell us you're not supposed to use plastic, so they switch to paper bags and then people complain about how many trees are being used to make the paper bags. So, those, so what are you supposed to do? Um, or there was, I remember one 
um, they're talking about disposable versus cloth diapers. You know, you so the disposable diapers are this eco allegedly this ecological catastrophe because they fill up landfills. You know, but if you switch to cloth diapers, well, that has you know you're using all kinds of water and energy laundering them. So it's sort of damned if you do, damned if you don't, and you it's hard to escape the conclusion. And actually, this is something that. Uh, Ayn Rand points out in her essay 50 years ago, ultimately the goal is not actually to get you to have no footprint. The goal is to induce fear and guilt in the same way that that's the goal of religion because you know, people who are frightened and shameful and feel like they've done something wrong, that they're more amenable to, um, you know, to being controlled and being told what to do and, and being made to toe the line. Um, yeah, that, that's okay. another common element between environmentalism and prior religions. It, it's, and it's yeah. part of, I think of environmentalism as a modern secularized religion. In it. And it has all the rituals that uh, older religions had. I, I think of recycling, for instance. You're bringing that up with cloth diapers and so on, and it's that they, from the point of view of footprint, well, these all create a footprint, they're all bad. The recycling is supposed to be that um, what we're doing is economic, it's wasteful, but wasteful in an economic sense to throw things away and so on. When you read about how the recycling works, and there's been news stories about this and so on, and it doesn't phase people that sometimes it's, they pick up the cans and so you have to sort your garbage into what's supposedly recyclable or not. And then they get all dumped into the dump anyways, because it's not economic to try to recycle these and so on. And people know that and they keep doing it. And that's, they're doing it, it's okay, we're supposed to do this. This is us doing penitence. Um, it's us leaving our guilt. It's like going to confession to for a Catholic. So once a week, yeah, I sort my garbage and put out the recycling. It doesn't do anything. So, but I've done my ritual. And there's so many aspects of environmentalism that are ritualized like this. Um, the fact, I mean, another, the fact that you, there's so much um, environmentalism in given to six-year-olds and eight-year-olds who have no capacity to understand the issue, like how does climate work and is it really a danger and do fossil fuels protect us from climate or not? They have no, they don't have the tools yet to think about that, to grapple with those issues, but they're pounded with supposed environmental values. They're actually, uh, the, the, they're not values, they're the destruction of human life. And that's a religion, like a religion wants to get people early so they can inculcate their dogma and also the guilt that so that kids are frightened today, that is a real phenomenon, I think. And it's part of the evidence that what you're dealing with is a religious mentality that's spreading its dogma and not a scientific mentality that is actually interested in trying to persuade and convince. Uh, now, the, the perspective that we've been offering today is basically not, uh, I mean, it's an understatement to say that it's not shared at all. I mean, the, the dominant perspective is this uh, apocalyptic perspective that, uh, that 
you know, our use of fossil fuels is, is going to destroy the world. Um, and all these things, these pieces of context that we've been saying are ignored or dropped and, and that, that um, show that the reality is otherwise, you know, is just not even on people's radar screens. And I, it's, it's hard to escape the conclusion, I think, that, what, that we're, we're, we're seeing people uh, expressing the kind of fears that you were just describing, young people, you know, I mean, there's, there's, there's studies or, or uh, reports about the numbers of young people who report, you know, being um, really traumatized at the idea of climate change and worried that they're not even going to have a future and this sort of thing. It's hard to escape that, you know, there's, we're, we're surrounded by a kind of mass hysteria. I mean, you have, um, you know, prominent figures, politicians and activists like AOC, you know, Alexander Ocasio-Cortez. I mean, a couple of years ago, she said the world, she literally said the world is going to end in 12 years if we don't address climate change. And you've got Greta Thunberg, you know, we're 12 years away from being, not being able to undo our mistakes. And she's saying, you know, I want you to feel, I want you to feel the fear I feel every day. I want you to act as if the, our house is on fire. Yeah, I mean, this is like, you know, end of days, apocalyptic kind of language. Um, I, uh, it, it, thinking about this prompted me to pick up a book uh, this, about these kinds of the madness of crowds. Extraordinary, the book is called Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds. And I just wanted to read a quote from that because I think it really expresses um, what we're seeing here to some extent, see if you agree with this. So can we get the quote up on the screen? So it's in reading the history of nations, we find that whole communities suddenly fix their minds upon one object and go mad in its pursuit. Millions of people become simultaneously impressed with one delusion and run after it. Men, it has been well said, think in herds. It'll be seen that they go mad in herds while they only recover their senses slowly and one by one. So, I mean, do you, do you agree that this sort of madness of crowds, what we're seeing here is a kind of mass hysteria that uh, comes out of this quasi-religious perspective? It comes out of the quasi-religious perspective and a way to read this quote and putting it that people recover their senses slowly and one by one. Thinking is an individual activity of carefully weighing the facts, looking at what the evidence is, looking at what counter arguments have been, and carefully making an assessment. Um, the, the hysteria of crowds is not an example of reasoning, but of emotion, and of following along because you find it congenial, you're swept up in the crowd, but it, it's really it, thinking at, at the cognitive level, it's the person's abandoned thinking, thinking, and he's going by emotions. And that at a philosophical level, that is what happens in the 19th century, what Kant does, but then he has a whole bunch of followers who cash in on what he does. He says, reason is limited. It, I'm not saying it doesn't work. And I'm not saying there's, there's, uh, nothing like science. I don't know. Science is an achievement. I'm pro reason, 
just don't think these tell you anything about the nature of reality. They don't get to the things in themselves. They don't get to what's really real. And then there's the question, okay, but how do we get to what's really real? And the answer is, and then this gets cashed out in the 19th century thinkers, is you get there by emotion, not by reason, logic, science, evidence. You've got um, a better means, which is emotion. And the older way of putting that is faith. Faith is just believing in what you want to believe. And that it's an emotionalism. And this is made explicit. That's what dominates philosophically in the 19th century. And from that perspective, what the, the kind of criticisms of capitalism and the industrial revolution, it's calculating and you've got to trade and you've got to earn your way and you've got to um, uh, it, it succumb and like this is their kind of view, succumb to the cold, hard logic of facts. We don't want that kind of life. We don't want that kind of world. This is, we want something radically different than that. And that is what happens. This is what the counter enlightenment is. It's these kinds of people. And what, hap what Kant does is he gives them the intellectual high ground. He makes these people look like they're the sophisticated ones who really understand what's going on. They understand reason doesn't really work, it's limited. So, and that's 100% wrong, but it's what dominates and it's why you can get collectivism, um, socialism, fascism, communism dominating, and then environmentalism now that dominates and has swept sort of the intellectual world. That it, it, it's, it's yeah. I mean, it really is a the what a counter enlightenment looks like. So, so for people to be able to recover their senses slowly and one by one, we have in 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 terms of these world historical philosophical issues, we have Ayn Rand and objectivism as as an answer to and a and a rethinking of all the fundamental issues that that. Uh, are needed to answer the things that Kant was was um, pushing forward, and 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 a, you know a, a rational philosophic framework for thinking about um, these things. And on the and when it comes to environmentalism and the and the issue of climate uh, and fossil fuels, you know I think if people want to try to recover their senses slowly one by one, you know you said that that takes it takes hard work, individual thought, logic. I mean, I think this is another good place to put in a plug for Alex's book because it's, it requires following an argument over 400 pages. Um, it's, it, but but the, what you'll get by doing that work is um, all of these missing pieces of context that are dropped in the discussions of climate and energy today, um, you know, he, he does diligently, systematically fills them in and, and, and builds up a perspective that, that I think is showing the right way to think about these issues. Um, and in a way that I've never seen, and I said this last week as well, 
I mean, the, the power of these arguments is something I haven't seen in discussions of climate and energy, and I've been following this issue for 20 years. So I think it's really, if anyone who hasn't pre-ordered the book who's watching this, you should go to Amazon and do that right away. Um, so I wanted to, <laughs> I thought we could end on a more positive note than, uh, than, than Kant, but I, I wanted to just call out where, we're getting some donations um, on the super chat in YouTube. So I wanted to say thank you to the people who've been donating uh, over YouTube. Um, we got some questions coming through on YouTube. So maybe we should turn to take a couple of those. Um, let's see. So one person is saying, uh, in discussing the pandemic, ARI describes situations in which the state could intervene to prevent sickness, I guess the issue of quarantine and that sort of thing. How bad would climate change need to get before something similar is justified? So this is something that Alex also addresses in his book. So you could get more detail there. But if you look at if you if you look at the issue with the full context, if you look at at the at the indispensable benefits that we get from fossil fuels. If you look at the realities of the alternatives, you know the idea that we can just suddenly switch off fossil fuels and everything will be great because we have solar and wind. I mean, we didn't get into that too much, but that is a complete distortion of reality. Fossil fuels are, are indispensable and, and they will continue to be indispensable in the foreseeable future. And, uh, and if you look at, um, uh, at the issue of climate change itself, Again, keeping the full context, um, how much our use of fossil fuels has improved our ability to stay safe from climate-related disasters. Even when you get into the claims about what the effects of climate change will be, the, the same anti-impact, anti-human life framework that gave rise to all the other distortions and failed predictions that we've been seeing are also distorting this issue. Um, you know, the it, uh, 170 years of industrialization have increased atmospheric carbon dioxide. Um, that's been accompanied by a warming of around one degree centigrade. You know, but the claim that what this is that what this is producing, and you see people saying we're already seeing, you know, catastrophic effects. That is that's completely wrong. So one of the points that Alex makes in the book is he asks, like, how bad would it have to be, you know, in order to say that there's a real issue here that needs to be addressed? And, and given the, uh, the, the um, ability that we have to master the climate coming from fossil fuels and that sort of thing, like it literally it would have to be like apocalyptically bad. Um, before you could even contemplate, you know, uh, uh, saying that there's a problem here that we need to address. I don't know, do you, you want to add anything to that, Ankar? A different aspect of this, which is in terms of thinking about the environmental movement and its leaders and its intellectual leadership. The uh, uh, Ben and Nikos talked a little bit about this earlier in the week. The issue of, I think Nikos put it as the issue of nuclear power is a litmus test. And that's if you were really concerned and thought that climate change is going to be close to a catastrophe, 
or just have really negative um, effects, you would be a champion of nuclear power if you were pro-human life, because it would be, you would know energy is indispensable to modern human life. It's indispensable to the ability of so many people to live for so long at a high standard of living that you have to have energy. Nuclear doesn't um, uh, produce any of these uh, um, greenhouse gases. So you would be pro-nuclear energy, not just sort of, yeah, let's not demonize it. You would be pro and crusading for nuclear energy that like in, in the way that France uses it for generating electricity, like we should be doing this all over the world. And that is not at all what you've seen from the environmental movement that nuclear basically since it was discovered has been demonized. So not just, oh, there's nothing to see here. It was adamantly attacked in the most dishonest way. When you read, and I've read some of them, one of the classic works here is Peter Beckman's um, The Health Hazards of Not Going Nuclear. So this is before mm. climate change and so on. And that the attacks on nuclear energy were fundamentally irrational, that if you looked at the science, um, you can never reach any of these conclusions. But if you're interested in scaremongering and say, well, look, a nuclear bomb and a nuclear power plant, they've got the word nuclear and one can explode, so the other can explode, and we should be scared of someone building a nuclear bomb in, in someone's backyard. And so that kind of scaremongering happened all the time. And it tells you something very um, significant and very profound, but profoundly disturbing about the environmental movement that it has been anti-nuclear really since the inception of nuclear power. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I, I have an article about energy, you know, that, that we'll link to later, but uh, so I talk about environmentalist oppositions to all, all forms of energy from fossil fuels, nuclear, hydro, and even, uh, I mean, I think another litmus test, another telling thing is even when it comes to solar and wind, you know, when you have these large scale industrial solar developments, they get opposed by environmentalists because you're impacting nature. You're putting this huge thing in the desert and you're impacting the habitat of the desert tortoise and this sort of thing. So it really, it's, it's uh, yeah, it, 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 it um, shows what standard is really driving them. Um, so I think we're kind of at our, uh, at our time here. There's, there's a question about paper straws and is plastic a bigger issue than fossil fuels? Um, I would say there's a similar kind of catastrophizing that happens with regard to plastics. It's not, if you really look into the facts on this, it's you know, the idea that we're causing some plastic Armageddon in the oceans and so on is not, not really true. Um, but I, we don't think we really have the time to delve into that in too much detail. Um, so any final thoughts before we uh, wrap up, Ankar? On the issue of the positive, and going back to what Ayn Rand said about this issue, but what you can learn from objectivism. Objectivism asks you to rethink your values, to rethink them across the board at a very deep level. 
And one enormously important value that it asks you to think of and to think of as a value is industrial civilization. You can think the industrial revolution, capitalism, but the civilization we enjoy today and what has made it possible. And the, the, the issue is not to critique environmentalism for environmentalism's sake, as though it's, oh yeah, it's fun to tear down a viewpoint. The issue is this viewpoint wants to tear down an irreplaceable value. And the more that you come to see that as, yeah, this is an irreplaceable value, life on earth prior and without industrialization is, it's not clear, like it's even a life we would want to live anymore. And the more you understand that, then the more you see, okay, the stakes are very high for this issue. It warrants really thinking carefully about. And the more you'll start to see, yeah, the environmentalism and environmentalist movement doesn't care about this value. And yet it's an irreplaceable value and it will transform the whole way that you think about this issue. And you'll see, I think that you'll start to see that what the culture is feeding us is it's really, really wrong. Okay, so for some, so from some, from got some guidance in, in taking that journey and exploring those issues, uh, let's talk about some resources that you can look at to learn more about it. So we started off talking about um, Ayn Rand's anti-industrial revolution. So that's available. Um, it was originally published in a book called The New Left, The Anti-Industrial Revolution. Um, the second edition is called Return of the Primitive. Um, so that's that's a really interesting essay. You know, again, it's shocking how prescient it was that she would be able to reach this analysis of the environmental movement 50 years ago. Um, I, I write a fair bit on this issue. Um, so if on our journal, New Ideal, if you go to the page that has all of my essays, you'll see some of the articles I've written about um, risk that we face from climate, about energy issues, and just other issues related to um, environmental issues. I think you might find some of those interesting. Um, and then I think one of one thing we've been recommending throughout today's podcast is Alex Epstein's book, Fossil Future. Um, again, this is gonna be published in May, uh, but if you pre-order it, you know, that'll help uh, let the publisher know that there's demand. And, and so it's a good thing to pre-order it if you haven't done that. Um, so I, I you know, highly recommend doing that. So upcoming in the podcast uh, next week, we're gonna be doing, Periodically, we do a Q&A episode. So if you have questions and questions about objectivism, it's kind of like an ask me anything about objectivism. So that we'll be doing that next Wednesday, uh, general Q&A. So send in, be sure to send in your questions. We've already gotten some, and I think we're always looking for more. So send those in. Um, we are doing this fundraising campaign on YouTube. Um, so if you're watching on YouTube or if you watch the replay on YouTube, we have a donate button. We're trying to, you know, we're trying to raise $5,000 over the course of this month. I think we're about 20% of the way there. So if you want to help us get all the way there, you know, uh, feel free to donate as much as you can on our fundraising campaign. 
And as we always say, you know, if you enjoyed this podcast, uh, subscribe to our channel on YouTube, click the bell for notifications. Um, if you watch the recording, please like, comment, share the episode, help us attract new viewers. Um, if you, you know, have friends who you'd like to argue with about environmental issues, send them this episode and that'll prompt a good discussion. Um, do the same on Facebook or on other channels if you're watching. And finally, you know, if you have questions or comments about today's episode or suggestions for future episodes or anything else, send us an email at newideal@einrand.org. We don't, we read all the emails. We don't respond to all, we, we don't, can't always re reply to all of them, but we try to reply to as many of them as we can. Um, and we look forward to hearing from you. So that's it for today. Thanks, Ankar. And we will see you all next week. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.